Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and worship you and to look at your word. We ask you to guide and show us what you would have us to see from this psalm that talks all about you and guide us and lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Isaiah 53, it is a Messianic psalm. It is one of the most clear pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament when we look at it. So starting at verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He had no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him... There is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. So we're going to start right there. Uh, and it starts out with who believes or stands firm and trusts. All right. Who is going to trust our report? And this is Isaiah talking about, about him. And to whom is the Lord the, the Lord's arm re revealed his strength. And this has always been to Israel. Israel has been shown God's power, his strength, his steadfastness. We come along as Christians and he shows us his power, his steadfastness. And yet, how many times do we not take a firm stand in that? You know, trials come and, we're, and we can be little less than the world most of the time, but we can still blame God and God, how can you let this happen? And, you know, why, why is all these bad things happening? And God is saying, do, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Sometimes they're just consequences of our sins or consequences of those around us sinning because we do, some of our consequences just aren't our sins. Sometimes we get consequences for others in our sphere of their sin. And this is what we say all the time. There's consequences for our sins, and they're always worse than what we expect, all right? Which means they affect other people, all right? So our sins can cause pain to other people, and when we really get that revealed to us by God, it can break our heart because we start thinking about all the people that have been hurt over the years of our rebellion and start going, wow, this person's life has really been messed up. God helped them you know, recover from my, you know, for the consequences I caused them. Sometimes that can be our kids. Sometimes it can be our spouse that have to go through that. It could be employees if you have a business that's not being run according to God's ways. Or you're running a business that are, you know, and your employees are being hurt by bad decisions from the boss. And you might be the employee of that person suffering consequences like the job, the business closing because of their misdeeds or uh, in the business I ran that I was working in for many years, the, they were cheating, they were not being uh, good with their, the tax money that they were collecting from other people, and they went to jail. Well, their business got shut down. I was no longer making the money I used to make. <laughs> you know, and not of any fault of mine, it just, they, they were committing a crime, and I got the consequences of no job. So this happens to us, and... This is what Jesus said, I have revealed to you, you know, and yet you're not really paying attention. And this is what's going to happen as we go through this. People aren't paying attention. It says, for he shall grow up as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. This idea of dry ground, barren. When Jesus came to this world, 
the Israelites were practically nothing. They had basically lost their country. Rome was ruling over them. They still had a country. They still had their government, theoretically. But they were no king, no, no rulers. They, you know, and Jesus came out of the line of Judah, out of the kingly line, one of the lesser lines of the King David. But he came from King David's line. And by that time, there was no respect for the king, no respect for the line of David. And so he's dry, barren. The people of Israel are really not following God at this place. And if you think about when Jesus came, who did he have the most problem with? With the religious leaders who had started getting to this point where they weren't worshiping God, they weren't seeking after God, they weren't, they weren't caring about the sacrifices. They had rules. Let's just follow rules. You know, rules are what it's all about. And unfortunately, that's what ends up in religion. Religion always boils down to rules. If I do enough good things, God's going to like me. If I do more good than bad, God is going to be okay with me because he's going to throw everything on a scale and whichever way the scale goes is what he's going to accept. And he goes, no, one sin outweighs any amount of good. All right? You could have a perfect life, and this is impossible, but just saying you could have a perfect life and commit only one sin, and let's make it a lie. You told one lie in your life, and that's the only sin that you had ever committed. That one lie would outweigh every bit of your life, and you would, in, you would end up in hell. All right? And yet people want to try to believe, I can do enough good to please God. Why do they want that? Pride. Pride. You know, you witness to people and go, all you need to do is accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He gave himself so that you can accept him. Oh, that's too easy. Yeah, it's so easy that you can't do it or won't do it because it violates your pride. And that's why most people don't get saved. Once they even recognize it, they don't get saved because their pride gets in the way. Uh, I've got to do something. You know, for by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. God's not going to let us do anything good to deserve heaven. All right? It's all about Jesus. And this is what he said. He came up at a barren place. And the Jews are even worse today than they were in Jesus' day because now that this temple has been destroyed, they don't even worry about trying to give a sacrifice. They just say, do good things and God will accept you. Even though all of Scripture says no, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, the Jewish people say, because there is no sacrifice, no, no temple, you just do good things and you'll be okay with God. And they've gone into deep religion. And the sad thing is so many Christians get caught up in this same attitude. You know, well, how do I please you, God? Yes, I know, God. You said all i got to do is accept you. But how do I, what do I do now? And, you know, when he's in our lives, we are going to do good things. Okay, he's going to change who we are. He's going to change us. We're going to start doing the right things. But our motive is not so God's going to love us and accept us and do nice things to us. It's, God, you've done so much for me. What can I do? to just honor you. And this is something that we do. And if you think about it, uh, you know, I came from a family where my, I had good parents and I just wanted to do things that were nice for my parents. Not, I knew my parents loved me. I cared for me. I wasn't trying to say, oh, I got to go buy their love. Now, I know there's families out there where you have to buy your parents' love. It wasn't in my case. I had that relationship that was more like God. I, what can I do that say, Mom and Dad, I just love you. Not because I'm trying to get them to love me more or give me something, 
but because I just want to give that. And that's how God wants us. Just loving him enough saying, God, I just want to, I want to serve you just because. You love me so much that I just want to serve you. And that's where we should be. And that means surrendering ourselves to him, trying to live the way he wants right, through his power, and just watching. Because the great news is when you surrender to God, he changes you. He changes you. You're not sitting there trying. You're not trying to stress out. And I'd love to be, you know, how are you doing? Well, I'm trying to do good. And I'll tell people, quit trying. <laughs> and they'll look at me like, what? I go, let God crucify your flesh and let him live out of you and quit striving and trying. And I've been hearing a number of pastors have been saying this, you know, if you're trying not to do something, quit thinking about not doing it and think of something to do instead. Okay? If you're trying to not think of something, that means you're thinking about it all the time. God, I am not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. Well, gee, maybe. No, no, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. You know, start telling yourself, I am going to tell the truth. I am going to tell the truth. I'm going to tell the truth. And eventually you'll start telling the truth. Okay? And you're not thinking about not lying because you're telling yourself, I am going to be truthful. You know, I am going to be forgiving. Well, I've got to, got to forgive this. You know, got to, you know, God, you, you really want me to forgive? God, I'm trying to forgive these people. Again, we're, we're focused on the wrong thing when we're doing that. And we need to be able to have our mind changed by the washing of the word and start thinking about what he wants, not what he doesn't want. And the more we think about him and what he wants, the more we're going to become like him just because. And again, if you want to ever have trouble, keep thinking about what you're not supposed to do and you're going to, be, you're going to be facing those trials all the time. I am not going to get mad at any of these people anymore. I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to get mad. I'm not going to get mad. And the next thing you know, you're mad. So look at changing the way we think. We change the way we think. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what are we doing? We change the way we think and quit thinking the way the flesh thinks. The flesh is almost always, what should I not do? What should I not do? What should I not do? Adam and Eve face this problem. You can eat of any tree in the garden except for that tree. Not the one you want. And that's the one they want. You know, and I can, I'm sure that what happened was they're past that tree. They have the entire garden and they go past this tree all the time. wonder why we can't eat that tree. No. Well, why can't we eat that tree? Because they were looking at the wrong, they were already in the wrong mindset when Satan came along to tempt them. All right? And we are in that same place so many times. You know, well, you know, I really, really, really want to do, no, we can't do that. No, let's change the way we think and say, I want to be like Christ. And the more I want to be like Christ, the more he's going to crucify my desires. And the more I'm looking at the positive side of things, and the more I have him changing me. All right? So we want to be able to get into that. And I don't know how I got there on this verse, but... <laughs> So Jesus is being coming out of the dry place in Israel. Israel was down about as low as they could go at the time. And they're going to be, at, just after Jesus' death, about 40 years later, Jerusalem is conquered and destroyed. 
because the Jews rebelled one too many times. And then the Romans take the entire temple apart block by block because they started melting the, melting the, the gold on the, on, the, on the temple and it melted into the cracks so they took every brick apart to get to it and that's what God had said. There will not be one, brick, one stone standing upon each other. So because the, because the gold melted into the cracks during the fire, they took every stone apart to get all the gold out of the temple, fulfilling God's word. And they were at their lowest point during that period of time. Um, they're now a new nation, supposedly a Jewish nation, and they follow some of the laws, uh, but not all of them. They don't have a temple yet for sacrifice, and they're just trying to do good. And God will get hold of their hearts during the, millennium, you know, during the tribulation period, they'll finally come to him and recognize uh, we missed our Messiah. And they'll recognize who he is. But they were dry place, and out of that dryness, Jesus came. And you know, it's kind of the same thing for us in, in many of our lives. When we get saved, especially around our lost friends when we first get saved, <laughs> we are that green shoot in the middle of a barren area. And as we grow then our friends usually start forsaking us if we stay strong with God because they don't like being around us. You know, and you'll hear, you, you're not fun anymore. You think you're better than us. You know, uh, you're judging me, all these things. Now, and all we're doing is changing the way we think and the cha changing the way we are. And unfortunately, it's a good thing, but you'll never have more exposure to the lost world than when you're first saved because you're, that's when you have the most unsaved friends in your life. The longer you walk with God, the fewer unsaved friends you get. Unless you're at work or neighbors, that's where you're going to get your unsaved because if you're talking about Jesus, you're talking about God, they're going to get tired of hearing you. Mm -hmm. you know, and you'll find out that they're really not that great a friend after all. You, know, they, you were fun when you were partying with them. You were fun when you did all the sin with them. But now you're not wanting to live the way the world lives and you're no longer fun. But that's the greatest thing when we can be able to say, it's Jesus. It's Jesus that, I, that I'm walking with. And I, and I told you, I used to love it going into, going into work, you know, and going, you know what Jesus, you know what God did this last, the, yesterday for me? And you could just see their glaze, most of them eyes glaze over, oh, he's going to talk about God again. Yeah. You know, but you know, that's the way our friends get. And eventually they abandon us and we end up with Christian friends and it gets harder to be able to witness to people because everybody you know is saved. And the longer you walk with God, the more you hang out with the, the church, the more you get Christian friends and the less you get. And that's when we have to purpose to be doing something to put us out in the world, whatever that might be. I've been really concentrating, God, what can we do to get out amongst the world? You know, I do have the prison. I have lots of people to talk to, but I want to do more because I have restrictions at the prison. I can only do so much at the prison. Okay, without, without taking the chance of losing my job. Now, I talk about God a lot at the prison, but there's, I have to stop at a certain point because of the environment, and they're not paying me to preach the gospel out there. So I'm looking, God, what else can I do? What can I get involved with to be able to reach out to other people? And, you know, we don't want to abandon our friends. We want to try to help them out, but just be aware that the longer you follow God and the more you change to be godly, the less they want to be. And they don't want to be with you for even if you don't say anything, you bring God into the, their presence and the world does not like God in their presence. 
Not only does he come out, but he says he has no form of nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. This is very interesting that from this picture of Jesus, he wasn't the hunk. All right. He wasn't the guy that you go, oh, wow, I just got to go over there and meet him. Look at, look at that gorgeous hair and perfect physique and uh, the pictures we have of him today. You know, he was just, I don't think he was ugly per se, but he was just very average. Very average, uh, you know, and not, not, a, not the, you know, oh, I got to just meet this guy. Look how beautiful he, you know, or handsome he is. You know, there's no, he wasn't built. He didn't have the six-pack problem. You, we know that he had to have been physically strong because he was raised a carpenter. And in those days, that meant go out, chop the wood, carry the wood, plane the wood yourself, so he had to be fairly strong. There was nothing that made him stand out from the crowd. All right? And you would think about this. God became man, and he became average. <laughs> you know, he just made himself average. God could have made himself the best-looking guy out there and have everybody falling for him, but that's not what he wanted. He wanted people to just see him as an everyday person. And the same thing with his birth. He wasn't born in the palace with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was born in a manger to a poor family that had nothing. How do we know that he was poor? Mary's sacrifice was the turtle dove. That was the poor person's sacrifice because you could go out, catch a dove, and bring it to the, bring it to the temple. All right? They weren't even wealthy enough to bring the lamb. And so he has no great physical appearance. He's just average. Like I said, I don't think he was ugly because that would have drawn people's attention. He was just your average Joe, you know, whatever, you know, look. If he wasn't one that you took a second, you know, second look at you know, or a third look or a fourth look. You know, he was just average. Nothing, nothing that would really draw attention. All right. And verse, uh, and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3, he was, is despised and rejected of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus was not somebody who was accepted. Now, we know a little bit about him in his, in his ministry. In Matthew 13, I just want to read some of these stories so that we know that how, he, how he is uh, rejected. In Matthew 13, uh, 53 through 58. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence, and when he came to his own country, he taught them in the synagogues, and insomuch that they were astonished and said, Where did this man come, wisdom come from and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and jo Joseph and Simeon and Judas and his sisters? Are, are they not here with us? Whence did, has this man come by these things? So he was in the Nazarene area, and they're going, uh, he grew up, he was a carpenter. How did he learn so much about the scriptures? Where did this power come from? And they would not accept him. Uh, later on. But in this particular case, they're going, we know him. You know, one of the hardest things, for, especially for children to do, is transition in, a, in the same church from being a child in a church to being an adult in the church. Because everybody always sees them as the kid. 
Okay? And we do the same thing with our own kids. You know, my, my youngest is 31 years old, and I still think of her as a child. You know, just, I know that she's not in all this, but in my mind, she's still my baby. Okay? And we've all done that. You know, and we do it, and we need to be careful when kids get raised up in a church that we don't start looking at these adults and think of them as children because it's easy. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know you're 50, but I remember when you were playing around in the baptismal waters that day and, you know, when you were supposed to not, you know, I know that you were the one in the closets, you know, going through the closets and getting into trouble. You know, that was 40 years ago. Would you let it go, you know? Uh, but this is where Jesus is. He's doing mighty things, and they're looking at him like, who are you? Who gave you this authority? Where did you learn this, this type of things? In Mark 6, verses 3 and 4, and again, we see this, is not, the car, is, the, is not this the carpenter's son married and the brothers James and Joseph Yos, and Judah and Simeon and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended of him. Okay. This upstart, <laughs> this, this young lad that we grew up with is trying to teach us. Yeah, and sometimes that will happen in churches even when somebody is called by God and they're starting to teach, and especially if they grew up in the church, but even, even if they're just young, who is this youngster teaching us? And that's why Paul told Timothy, let no man despise your youth. You were called, you were anointed. Don't let them despise you just because you're a young man. If God is speaking to you, you don't need to be old to have wisdom. Matter of fact, the old may not have any wisdom. <laughs> when it comes to godly wisdom, they may be smart, they may, you know, may have some good worldly understanding, but when it comes to God's understanding, they may not be any better off than that young teenager. All right? And so we want to be very careful. In John 7, starting at verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he could not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. And the, and the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at, was at hand, and his brethren, his literal brethren, therefore said unto him, Depart hence and go to Judea, that your servant, your disciples, also may see the works that you do. For there is no man that does anything in secret, and he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. So his brother, so, you know, they're out to get you. <laughs> They're out to get you leave. I couldn't, couldn't find it off the top of my head, but there's a time when Mary and his brothers come to Jesus because they think he's crazy. You know, and it says, hey, your mom and dad, are, your, your mom and your brothers are outside. You know, and he's going, no, you guys are my family. Because they'd come because they thought he was crazy. He was, he was saying he was the Messiah. Not only that, he said he was God. Now, his brothers, his mom and his brothers, especially his brothers, probably his brothers, You've got to think, though, this is 30 years after the birth of Jesus. She knew he was different, but I don't, I don't know that it's very easy to become familiar with things. And when you have everybody telling you, hey, our brother's crazy, our brother's crazy, you know, uh, he's doing really strange things. Who does he think he is? And it was probably them driving it, because remember, the women had no real rights in that time, so it was probably his brothers driving it. And we know that James didn't believe him until after the resurrection, and then he became the leader of the Jerusalem church. But it took him a long time. And part of it probably was, how would you have liked to have grown up with Jesus as your brother? 
never does anything wrong. I mean, it's bad enough that you think your brother or sister doesn't do anything wrong. But in this case, he didn't do anything wrong. He never lied. He probably never kept it a secret. You, know, you did not do anything wrong in front of him because if he was asked, he was going to tell the truth. And because of the whole truth is to speak up in the first place, he probably got the reputation of being a tattletale. Okay, so we see all this stuff going on and we look at this and Jesus was not accepted. The people as a whole did not accept it. He was rejected by all, well not all, but most of the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees. Now there were a number that followed him more in secret, but for the most part they rejected him because he brought to them how evil their sin was. He he was despised. People did not like him. Now the world kind of liked him, but most of the world, he even said, you are only coming here because of the signs and wonders that I do. You know, and this happens even in churches. If I want to get a great big audience coming up, all I got to do is advertise. We're going to teach the book of Revelation. Now we're going to teach the book of Revelation again sometime in the future, but I already have. And when I did, our Bible study jumped to 12, 20 people. Everybody showed up because they wanted to study the book of Revelation. And I like the book of Revelation. It's a great book. However, it has no practical day-to-day -day use for us on living. It's great to know the future, that God wins. It's great to know that we're going to be taken from this world and, and, and miss the tribulation. It's good, good to know that God's going to raise up people in the tribulation period. But... To, to how am I going to live on a day-to-day -day basis? It's great for hope. No matter what happens, God, you're, you're going to win, and you've, you've told it, and I know you're going to win, so thank you. And it's great for our hope. But does it really help me go through the temptations and trials on a daily basis? But you, you want to get a good crowd out, you just teach about prophecy. You teach about prophecy, and you'll draw the crowd. And I'm not totally dismissing it, but... You know, I would much rather teach things that are going to say, this is how you live. This is how you get through the trials that you're going to face today, tomorrow, and next week. Then just, let's go talk about what's going to happen in the future. And, and I don't want to belittle it. It's good to know. God says there's a blessing in, knowing, in studying the book of Revelation. So we, we want to keep that in mind. But day to day, how do I live is much more important as far as I'm concerned than just knowing the future. Now, I'm not saying don't, don't study Revelation. It's a great book to study. Daniel's a great book to study. It talks about the future. But they're powerful books, and they're great for the future, and they're great for the saying, God, you're, you win, great, thank you. But for the day-to-day, -day, helping me win in my life today, they're not the greatest books. All right? And I'm not saying ignore them, but you know, you know I reference them all the time. The Millennial Kingdom, the Tribulation. I know those books very well. I've spent a lot of time studying them over the years. All right? But I would much rather study how do I live than to study all of that prophecy stuff. It's fun to study the prophecy stuff. It's interesting. But my day-to-day -day life is what's important to me. How do I have victory in today? Not that I'm going to have victory in the future, which is great. Not that I'm going to be getting my glorified body when, I'm, when, I'm raptured, when I either die or get raptured. You know, and yes, I have the victory at that point, but how do I live in victory today is much more important to me than sometime. And, and the problem with this is so many times as human beings, we live in one of two places that we're not supposed to. We live in the future 
Someday when I get, when I get retired, I'm going to go out on all these, all these trips that I wanted to take. When I retire, I'm going to do all these things. When I get someplace, I'm going to live. I'm supposed to be living in the now. The other side that we're not living in, so many people live in the past. I have messed up. I can't forgive myself. Nobody's going to forgive me. You can't change the past, forget about the past, and we have no control of the future. We have, the only thing we have any small bit of control over is right now. And as soon as I said now, that moment's gone. Okay? So I literally have control of a very small period of time, and by the time I realized that I had control of it, it's already gone. Okay? We must live in the now, which is why God said his name is I am that I am. I'm not I was, not I will be, but I am. I'm the God of the moment that you're living in. And because he encloses all moments, he's also the God of the past and the future. But to him, it's I am. He indwells all of it at the same time. But we need to be quit focusing on the future so much. Don't be oblivious to it. Don't mean we don't plan for, for activities. But we don't sit there and just say, when I get there, when I get there. Everything will be good when I get there. I need to live in the victory of now and not in the defeat of the past. You know, you want to ruin your life, live in the past. There's lots and lots of people who live in the past. You know, and, there, and I've met lots of people who are living for the future. And from all my retired friends that I get to know, they wish that they had lived in the now when they were there because they don't have the money or the energy or the health to live in all the plans that they had and they realize that they've wasted their life planning for the future. You know, so we just need to, wherever we're at, live in that moment. And that doesn't mean forget about the future, you know, it's completely, but we just don't, you know, well, you know, one day when I get there, everything's gonna be all good. Well, the only place that that's gonna be is when we get to heaven, <laughs> all right? Until then, we have a life to live here serving God to the best of our ability. You know, day by day, and I've, and I've looked at this over time, every age has a reason not to serve God. When you're a child, you're just too young, nobody cares about you. You're a teenager, you're too busy, and most of the adults don't, aren't going to listen to you. You get into college, you're too busy trying to get ready for your career. You start your career, you're too busy trying to get your foot in the door. Uh, you, get, you get into, you're a little bit established in the business and then your kids are growing up and you have to take, start taking care of your kids and being at their games and their, and their parties and their activities. Then you get little, they're kind of on their own and all of a sudden you're, got, you're in middle management, you're trying to make decisions and moving up in the company. Then you're running the company and then you get retired and you no longer have the strength or energy to do it and it's time to let the young people who have all the excuses not to be there anyway do it, you know. If God is asking us to do something, do it. We will make room for whatever is important. And my example on this is, you know, if you have some, some big event, you know, you're a sports enthusiast, you're a baseball enthusiast, and your friend all of a sudden says, I've got two tickets to the World Series and your favorite team is playing, and they're gonna give you the tickets, you will probably find time to use those tickets and pay for the hotel or the gas or whatever it takes to be able to use those tickets, it's very rare for somebody, ah, no, no, can't go, can't do it. They're gonna find time to do it. They're gonna find time to give of their finances. 
don't believe it, what do you spend your money on? You know, they tell us right off, if you really want to know what's important in somebody's life, take a look at their checkbook. What are they spending money on? Are they giving God the tithe of everything they have and then offerings on top of it, or is God getting the leftovers? You know, they made $1,000 and God got 10. Okay, which is better than some people, but they're still not a tithe. All right, so we look at it and say, what am I spending my money on? And what do I spend my time on? Because I hear people, well, I'm too busy to go to church. I go, well, God's not important. Well, don't tell me that. I go, no, you just told me. You're too busy for God and his people. God is not number one in your life. And if I look at your checkbook, I'm going to find that God is not important in your life. And it's very important that we put him first. And I've shared, you know, I really think that God wants not just a tithe of our money. He wants a tithe of our time. Because a lot of people go, well, I don't have money, so I'm going to just give God lots of time. All right, are you giving God at least 10% of your time? Because that's where you start. And he still wants 10% of your money. All right? Now, if you're going to give him 20 or 30% of your time, maybe. You know, I have learned over the years that there are many pastors that don't tithe their check because they feel I'm working for God all the time. Nowhere in my Bible does it say the priest were not supposed to tithe. So I don't know where they're coming up with that idea. All right? But that's their justification. You know, I'm working. Now, I understand. Sometimes when I give my check and I look, you know, I give my tithe check and I look at it, I'm going, okay, I'm paying myself to work here. <laughs> okay? It's, it's not the end of the world, but it's like, okay. But somebody's got to pay me. It might as well be me. <laughs> so, but you know, where are we with God? Are the time we spend... And the, how we use our money will very clearly show where, how important God is to us. Uh, line in one of the Christian movies I was listening to the other day was that the guy goes, how important is God to you? Because he asked him who he was, and he started naming, I, I am, this is what I do for a living, this is what I do, I'm a family man. And, and, he, and he finally got to God like in seventh or eighth place, and he goes, well, what does God mean to you? And he started talking about how God was everything to him. And it's going, well, it's kind of, I find it kind of interesting that God was so low on your list. Is that who we think of ourselves? And especially for us as men, it's, we usually think of our job and, and who we are. You know, I'm a father. I do this for work. I do this. I do this. You know, do we really think of God first and say, God, you're important? How much is he in the forefront of our mind? And it's easy for him to get lost. It's easy for him to get so wrapped up because we go through the mundane monotony of each day. Get up in the morning, eat breakfast, go to work, come home, go to a Bible study on the Bible study nights or do some, you know, whatever. Even if it's putting God in there, we kind of still go through the, through the motions, go to bed, get up the next morning, do the same thing all over again, and then get up the next morning, do the same thing all over again, and it's very easy to get caught up in the mundane. All right? But that is where true victory comes. Am I living in victory with God every day? It's pretty easy when things go bad to turn to God. You know, if that's our mentality. Oh God, you know, life is so miserable, God, I need you. Which is why God makes life miserable so often for so many of us. Because we're not thinking about him unless we're in misery. When we're being blessed, it's okay, God, thank you, see you later, maybe. And I might not even say that much to him. I'm just living in the blessings. 
And when everything's just going on, it's mundane, everyday thing, I'm just getting a routine of life, still reading my Bible, maybe praying once in a while, but not really needing God in my, in my mindset, not meditating on Him, not looking around for what is God doing and what can I do to help you know, serve Him. But when we're facing trials, you know, we'll either do one of two things. We'll walk away from God completely or we will draw closer to Him. And that's part of the test of the trial. Am I going to draw closer to God or am I going to drift away and then let Him keep chasing after me until I turn back to Him? But that's where true victory lies. Can I live with God in the day-to-day activities and stay focused on Him? Meditate on Him. Seek after Him. And you know, in some cases, He's not out there looking all that good in the middle of the day. You know, it's not like, well, yeah, I just got to go there. But you know, when you really start drawing close to Him, we're attracted. I love getting close to God. I love getting into the Word. I love when God moves. And you just start feeling him and go, wow, God, I've, got, I've just got to draw closer and closer to you. And, you know, and we do that, we start getting on a high, and a spiritual high with God, and we're excited about God. And then we need to be careful because when you're on a spiritual high with God, it's still easy to get unfocused. Because we start focusing on how good I feel and how good I'm doing and stop focusing on God. This is the danger with the blessings of God because we can get focused on the blessings and not the giver. Our eyes always have to stay focused on God. And I have seen more people suffer because of the blessings of God than from the hardships. You know, and over and over again, you see it. They just start getting so blessed that they start forgetting God. And just saying, well, I got everything I need. I really don't need God at the moment. And they're not going to say that out loud, but that is really what they're saying when they forget about God. I don't need you. Everything's going good, God. You know, I've got a good paycheck. I've got all my bills being paid. I really don't need to think about you, God. I'm even tithing and, and giving offerings. I'm reading my Bible every day, but it's just, I'm not even thinking about what I'm reading. I'm just reading my Bible. I'm saying some perfunctory prayers. And God gets, kind of gets left out on the sideline. We need to be very careful in those times to keep God as our focus and just encourage ourselves, focus on God and fo- help each other focus on God. You know, if you see somebody seeming to drift a little bit, say, how are you doing? Is everything going okay? How, what has God blessed you with? My goal is for our church to be talking about the blessings of God and the word of God that they've been, been, that they've been learning. I would love to have people just, you know, you know what God did for me? You know, I, I made this prayer and, and God answered this prayer. I don't care if it's a simple prayer. God still answered it. It doesn't need to be you know huge, miraculous thing. We need to focus on the fact that God is working in our lives. And the most important thing we can do is, is start sharing the simple things. Why? Because we remind others that God is still working in the simple because they're going to forget. And if I go, you know what, God blessed me so much. He showed me this in the Word. And it may not be the greatest thing in the world, but we would be telling somebody who's been s- struggling with is God doing anything in my life to maybe refocus them back on the fact that the little things are just as much blessing as the big blessing that you're looking for. The fact that you got up in the morning to live another day to serve God is a blessing. 
but we don't always look at it that way. Now, I love going to work. People going, oh, another day. I'm going, isn't this a great day? It's a blessed day. And, and they look at me like I'm nuts, and that's fine. I don't care. I'm going, this is a day that God has created, and it's an opportunity to serve him, and I'm going to choose to have a good day. And they look at me. Most of them don't even ask me anymore how my, about my day because they know what I'm going to say. They already know what I'm going to say because I really, truly believe we are in charge of how we're going to feel about our day. All right? If I choose to look at all the bad things that are happening, I'm going to have a miserable day. I am not going to look at the bad things. I'm not going to let the bad things drag me down. I'm going to say, God, what have we got in store for today? Oh, you give me an opportunity to praise you in the hard times? All right, God, we're going to praise you in the hard times. Okay, God, you've got some blessings? All right, thank you, God. We've got some blessings today. And you know what I am finding over more time? There's usually much more blessings than hard times if you're looking for the blessings. If you're looking for the hard times and you start focusing on the hard times, all you're going to see is the hard times. You start saying, God, you and I are going to have a great day and I'm looking forward to what you're going to do. And you're going to see God give you strength in the hard times. You're going to see him give you great honor. And you're going to go, this is wonderful. Now, are we always going to live in that high side? No. But, you know, we can start asking God to help us. You know, we can ask God, you know, when, we, when God asks us to do what we think is impossible, you know, what can we do? We may have to just go, God, help me to learn to be willing to do what you want me to do because I can't do it. That's a good prayer. God says, I want you to forgive that person who's hurt you desperately. Uh uh-uh, uh, God, I, I don't even like seeing that person. I'm sorry. So we can just sit down and say, God, help make me willing to be forgiven. Because, God, I'm not there. And that's a prayer that God will answer. And the next thing you know, you're forgiving that person and you don't even cognizantly remember coming to that place because God just answers the prayer to make you willing. And once you're willing, it's easy. And there's lots of things we do in the Christian life that we're not willing to do. We may even know we're supposed to. And we just need to ask God at the very least, God, help make me willing to do whatever it is. Whatever is in your heart. And that's going to be different for every single person. But we just lift him up because he is the one that is out there. Back to verse 3. <laughs> he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows. Do we really think about Jesus as being a man of sorrows? And if you think about this, he had no home. He said, the birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, I have no place to lay my head. He, had, he was an itinerant pastor going on and needing people's helps. He did not apparently make an income. So he was, again, dependent on others. And everything he had, he had people attacking him. His own family was attacking him. You're crazy. You don't know what you're, you know, we don't know what's going wrong with you. You went, you went a little mental, mentally insane. You think you're God? Okay. And we don't really understand what Mary fully understood about Jesus. I mean, yes, it was a virgin birth. You knew that he was the son of God. But what does that mean? You know, what would that have meant to her? God does not have a son in the Jewish mentality. The same thing is for the Muslim mentality. There's one God. How can God have a son? Mary's got to struggle with this. I'm giving birth to God's son. What does that mean? Is he really God? Is he man? He's my son. She's not going to fully understand what's going on there herself. 
<laughs> Am I crazy? Is he crazy? You know, what, what's going on here? And the longer it took for him to finally start ministering, remember, he doesn't start ministering until he's 30 years old. That's 30 years for her to forget about the miraculous nature of the, of the birth. Not completely, but you understand. The, the reality of, yeah, it was a miraculous birth, but he's my son. Okay? He's kind of like my other boys. Yeah, he doesn't do anything wrong, but he's, he's like my other boys. Uh, you know, he's just my son. I think this is probably true of mothers who have you know, a son who gets famous. To the mother, that's just their son. <laughs> the world loves him, the world, you know, the world thinks great, but that's just my son. You know, that's, that's just my kid. It doesn't matter how famous they get or how good they get, they're, your, they're just your child. So here's Mary, 30 years after the birth, this is my son. Yes, he was special, he had a special birth, but I don't quite know what that, because we, even as our place, we know that Jesus is the Theanthropos, the God-man. Okay, what does that mean? He was 100% God and 100% man. Now, the mathematics of that doesn't work. All right, I'm an analytical person. He's 100% God and he's 100% man, so he's 200%? Okay. With God, it works out with God. But he was fully man, fully God. And we can't comprehend that. He had a DNA that is totally, totally Eve's, uh, uh, totally Mary's, and yet he's God's son, which had some other effect on him. We'll never figure it out. And we'll never totally figure it out. We'll never fully understand it, but he was special. He was special, and he was born without sin because he was Mary's Mary's DNA. He did not get the, the seed of man to be born a sinner. So he was perfect. He was perfect and did not have sin. Every other person in this world has a human father, which means they are born as a sinner. Jesus was born only of woman, which means he was not a sinner at birth. All right? We do not sin because we, uh, because of our, uh, we're not sinners because of our sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are born sinners. We will do wrong. And anybody who's had a young child knows that you didn't teach your child to be selfish. You didn't teach them to be demanding. That baby at a very early age learns to be demanding. I'm hungry, scream. I'm wet, scream. I want attention, scream. They're not more than a couple of weeks old when they learn, I scream and I get attention. Okay, very selfish right from birth. And it only gets worse as they get older. And it starts becoming more conscious of what they're doing. So from the earliest age, our sin nature is shown. You know, and none of us taught our kids to be selfish with their toys. Matter of fact, we work hard on teaching them to be sharing their toys and kind to one another. It's not hard for the kids to be mean to one another. It comes natural. It's not hard to get them to, to lie. It comes natural. Right? It's hard to teach them to do what is right. And this is where we are at. When God is indwelling us, he's changing us so that we desire to do what is right because he indwells us and he says, I'm going to come out of you as I crucify your flesh. And before that, we can't live good no matter what. 
Because even if we are a good person, quote unquote good person, always in my mind I'm battling what I would like to do. You know, I know I need to tell the truth and be honest, but boy, I sure think I could, if I lied in this case, I'd probably stay out of a lot of trouble or not cause other people trouble. You know, all right, I'm going to be faithful to my marriage, but boy, that person sure looks good. <laughs> and they're really nice to me, and I'm, my, my spouse hasn't been nice to me for, for years, and I just, you know, and this, you know, but no, I'm going to be good. You know, we can make ourselves be good, but our thoughts always tend toward, man, if I could just get away with it. Most people, when they are surveyed in a survey that they trust, be, be honest, would say, if I could get away with it, I would do wrong. If I thought I could get away with it, I'd probably do wrong. You know, but then we go, God will know, and all, you know, we have all our reasons to. But even us as Christians, if we're not trying to focus on God, you know, well, hey, if nobody was going to catch me, it's not that big a deal. And we forget that God always sees us. But, you know, our nature says do evil. That's our first thought. And I've said this many times, when, when something happens to us, our first thought is going to be the flesh. Now the question is, how close am I walking to God? And his thought might come on so quick that I don't realize I, I had that bad thought. Or if I'm far from God, I may have to struggle not to live in that bad thought. But you don't think so? You know, have somebody come up and smack you upside the head. <laughs> what is your first reaction? Uh, okay, uh, you're, not, you're not standing anymore. Okay? Or if you're not really, really violent, you're going to go, just wait till I get back at you. You know, you don't know when it's coming. I don't, I'm not strong enough to beat you physically, but you don't know when, the, you don't know when this is coming, when, when the revenge is coming. You know, so we need to be careful because our first instincts are going to be the flesh. You know, our first instinct is to say whatever it is to keep out of trouble. Lie, blame, okay, whatever it might be. Our first instinct will be the lustful thought. Now we may come back real quick and, and pull it back and everything, but the flesh stands up fast. The closer we walk with God, the faster his thoughts will come in. The more he's changed us, the faster his thoughts will come in. The more he crucifies our flesh, the faster his thoughts will come in, but our flesh still is there. Our flesh is still wanting us to listen. You never give me what I want. You're right. I want to live the way God wants you. I stay out of trouble that way. You just want trouble. All right? Uh, so we look at this and say, God, what is it that you want me to do? How am I to live? And Jesus was despised. He was a man of sorrows. He did not have life on a silver platter. He had to trust God, the Father, for everything that he received. He had to trust God for everything. He spent time with God every morning, him and the Father. And it said, in the dark of the morning, because he was a busy man. He got up before everybody else and went and prayed in a quiet place, and then he had a busy day. Which is why it's important for us. Do we start our day with God? In prayer, in the Bible concentrating on him because if we concentrate on him then we can meditate on him all day long and that doesn't mean every one of my thoughts are going to be about God but we start thinking wow what did I read this morning yeah that verse is quite good oh I need this verse for this situation the whole day is usually gone 
And, you know, and if you've ever done it, you know, got so busy you didn't start your day and then you get to the end of the day and I'm going to do my, I'm going to do my devotion now and you go, wow, I needed all these verses for everything I went through today. And it's like, I should have read this this morning. It would have made my day go by a whole lot better. Been there, done that. <laughs> you know, wow, I needed this verse to share with that person who had a problem today and I didn't read it this morning when I should have. Or this temptation is just what I went through and I should have read this verse to know what was coming my way. We need to be very careful and focus on God. Jesus did not come in this world and said, all right, I'm going to live in a palace. I'm going to have the best of everything. I'm going to have servants. I'm going to have all the money to do whatever I want and just live in the lap of luxury because we would not have been able to identify with that. Okay? He came to be despised, to be rejected, just the way we feel most of the time if we're, if we're living in the flesh. Nobody likes me, nobody wanting to be around me, nobody cares. You know, I'm being rejected and we can get into our self, self-pity party. You know, uh, I'm not important. And you know, it it's becomes easy to fit into that. And all of it's a lie from Satan in the first place. All right? Because I don't care how bad things are there, are, there are people out there who still love you. You know, somewhere. Somewhere, probably your mom. <laughs> probably your mom, no matter how bad you think, she probably still loves you, even though she may not be able to show it as well as you would like her to. Because I've talked to many moms who, who their kids are absolutely sure that they don't love them, and they're going, I just love my kids so much, it breaks my heart. And because their heart's broken about where they're at, they can't show their kids how much they love them because all they see is how much heartbreak they've given them. And yet they love them so much and would gladly do anything they can for them, but they get wrapped up in the flesh and start criticizing them and trying to fix them. You know, and I've done that with my kids, especially the one who's off on the side. You know, I've gotten to the place where I'm so much wanting to see him get right with God that I pushed him away in, in many cases because I just want to see him get right with God and it breaks my heart that he's not. And he's not a bad kid. He's just not with God. And, you know, it breaks my heart that he's not there. And yet at the same time, my trying to push him so hard pushed him away. So I finally just had to say, okay, God, help me soften. He's in your hands. You have to win him. Because we will never get our family saved. Never. Now, we can give them. We might be the one that actually gives the gospel to them at, at some point and lead them. But the more we press on them, the more they're going to reject. The more we try to get them to live right, the more they're going to reject. All we can do is pray for them, live a godly life in front of them, love them as best we can and not try to criticize them. And believe it, I get I told you, I've been there. I've done it. Okay? I've done it the wrong way. <laughs> And I've done it the right way partially. But we need to be very careful. And, and our heart is so much toward those that we love because we don't want to see them go to hell. We don't want them to, if they're a Christian, we still don't want to see them suffer by rejecting God. And so we push sometimes way too hard trying to get them corrected. And as I've told you, I used to pray for Lynn when we were first married for God to change her. And I finally just said, God changed me because he always changed me. So for my kids, I say, God, just help me. Help me be more patient. Help me be more loving. Help me put them into your hands because he'll change them. He will change them. I, cha- I pray for myself and God changes them. But he also changes me and my attitude toward them. 
And it's really hard for those that we love. It's easier actually to witness the people you don't love and care for that much than it is for those you care. Because we try to push too hard for those that we care. And we just need to step back. Not completely stop sharing God with them, but not be so hard and judgmental on the ones we love. Yes, we understand that they, we want to see them right. We, we understand they're not living in victory. We understand that they're going down the wrong path. But the more we press, the more they're going to reject. And especially if we were a bad, exa- if, a bad example to them at any point in our life. They're going to go, who are you to tell me how to live my life? <laughs> so we end up with this thing of we want to be very careful because it's so easy to push them away. All right. We didn't get very far on Isaiah 53. (laughs) Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us. Lord, we thank you that you came and lived a common life like all of us, that you went through the same sufferings that we went through, the same rejections that we go through, so that when we go through these, you know what we go through. We thank you for that. Help us to learn to live in the acceptance and be able to place people in your hands. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.